Okay, that's a difficult passage. You may have been trying to follow along as we were reading and thinking there's like rest and no rest and there's enter and don't enter and there's hardening of hearts and don't harden your hearts and what is going on here? And that's my job. That's, I just chose a difficult passage this morning to impress you. No, not really. I chose this passage because we are in the middle of a series on well, what does it mean to come to church? What do we do at church? What are the things, if you've been coming to church for a long time, you probably don't even think about the things that we do. Of course we have a sermon. Of course we sing some songs. And of course we pass the offering plate. Uh, if you are, but you may not have actually stopped to think about, well, okay, but what's the significance? What's happening when we do all of that? On the other hand, you may be fairly new to church, and you may be saying, I don't understand a single thing that's happened so far this morning. And that's what we're trying to help with as well. This is a place for anyone to belong, or at least this is what we strive to make this place to be. Whether you've been here for 100 years, and some of you almost have, or whether you've been here for, you know, not even 100 minutes yet, uh, this is a place where you are welcome and you can belong, no matter how strange it may seem sometimes. So today, the last several weeks, first uh, we talked about, well, what, what's church all about in the first place? We said, well, church is where God's people who have met God through Jesus Christ get together, and they worship, and they grow to be like Jesus, and they go out into the world to be like Jesus, because the world needs this. Everyone needs this. And then we talked about two of the most important things that we do in worship together. We talked about why do we baptize people, and why do we celebrate the Lord's Supper? And this morning, we're going to talk about uh, why do we use Scripture so much? What's the significance of the Bible in our worship and in our life together? And there's a reason why we went baptism, Lord's Supper, and Scripture all back to back. And it's because in our tradition, in the Reformed tradition, we call these three things the means of grace. The means of grace. And uh, if you remember the uh, Heidelberg number 65 that we read together a few moments ago, let me, I'll refresh your memory here. Uh, the Heidelberg Catechism is a tool that was used for hundreds of years in the Reformed tradition to teach people about our faith, and it's in question and answer format. So the question is, since then, faith alone, what God wants from us is our faith and trust in him, and since that alone makes us share in Jesus and all his benefits, where does that faith come from? And the answer that we said, whether we understood it or not, was the Holy Spirit creates that faith in our hearts by the preaching of the Holy Gospel and confirms it by use of the Holy Sacraments. Preaching of the Holy Gospel, the Holy Sacraments, the Lord's Supper, and baptism. These are fundamental means by which God communicates his grace to us so that we become more like Jesus, so that we're assured that we're part of God's family and we understand what that means and we're able now to live as followers of Jesus Christ. So what do we need to know then? What's, what's Scripture's role? How is it a means of grace for us? We're going to come back to this Hebrews passage. But first, I want to take us to Isaiah 
chapter 55, verse 11. Uh, if you know where you're going, you can turn there, but we're just going to be there for a minute. You don't have to worry about paging all the way back into the Old Testament to find Isaiah. Isaiah 55, verse 11, and it says this, beginning in verse 10, actually. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth, praise God, right? And making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater. So, says God, is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. I have four children, as most of you know, and I often send my word out and it has little effect. <laughs> Any other parents there ever experienced this thing? I send my word out, children, children whom I love, who come from me and from my wife, children, do not engage in this behavior that you are engaged upon now. <laughs> Didn't you hear what I said, my children? Right, and on and on. My word goes out and it returns to me empty. But God's word is not like this. Let me tell you a little bit about God's word. You remember back in Genesis 1-1, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How did God create the heavens and the earth? Did he get together a team? Right? Did he assemble his equipment? Right? Is his machinery that he would use? No. It says, let there be light. And God's word did not return to him empty. And there was light. Let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. And there was sky. And let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And there was land. God's word's a little different than our word, isn't it? It does not go out and be vain. It does not return empty. That's all well and good to say, but... How does this actually work? Have any of you heard God's word and felt pretty much the same afterward? Yeah, I have. I have. So how do we know this is true? Well, let me, let me tell you a story. I've told this story uh, before, but it's been a while, and it's one of my very favorite stories. I'm going to tell it again. It's about a man named Charles Spurgeon, who was a very famous preacher in England in the 19th century. And this is the story of how he first got to know who Jesus was. It says this. I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair until now had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm. Where did the snowstorm come from again? God's spoken word. One Sunday morning while I was going to a certain place of worship, there was the snowstorm. And when I could go no further, I turned down a side street and came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. I have never met primitive Methodists. Uh, I'm just going to take Spurgeon's words for it here. But this is what he says. I had heard uh, in that chapel there may have been a dozen or 15 people. I had heard of the primitive Methodists, how they sang so loudly that they made people's heads ache. But that did not matter to me. I wanted to know how I might be saved. And if they could tell me that, I did not care how much they made my head ache. The minister did not come that morning. He was snowed up, I suppose. At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or tailor or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. How do you like that? Maybe someday I won't show up, and you guys will all look around at each other and choose a preacher to come up. It'll be neat. But listen to what happened. 
Now it is well that preachers should be instructed, but this man was really stupid. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. The text was, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. Good King James English from Isaiah 45. He didn't even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in that text. The preacher began thus, my dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now look and don't take a deal of pains. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It is just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to be able to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. I, said he in broad Essex, many on ye are looking to yourselves. Uh, the only accent I have is pirate accent, so I'm sorry. But it's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Same, some look to God the Father. No, look to him by and by. Jesus Christ says, look unto me. Some say, we must wait for the Spirit's working. You have no business with that just now. Look to Christ. The text says, look unto me. And then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me. I am sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me. I am hanging on the cross. Look unto me, I am dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend to heaven. Look unto me, I am sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me, look unto me. When he had gone on to about that length and managed to spin out ten minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. Then he looked at me under the gallery, and I dare say with so few present he knew me to be a stranger just fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all my heart, he said, young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did, but I had not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance before. However, it was a good blow struck right home. He continued, and you always will be miserable. Miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment you will be saved. Then lifting up his hands, he shouted as only a primitive Methodist could do, young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but to look and live. And Spurgeon concluded, and he told the story hundreds of times in his thousands of sermons. Oh, I looked until I could almost have looked my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away. And that moment I saw the sun. And I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which looks alone to him. Oh, that somebody had told me this before. Trust Christ and you shall be saved. What's true about that story? Charles Spurgeon went on to become one of the great preachers in, the Western, in Western history. Hundreds of thousands of people heard him preach. He preached to thousands every Sunday. So many came to know Jesus through his ministry. But he came to know Jesus through the ministry of a very stupid man 
who had only the word of God. The word of God does not return empty. The first time I preached here at this church, uh, it was an Easter Sunday, 2013. And uh, the church didn't have a pastor at the time. Dan and Kathy had retired and they'd moved on. And uh, I came, I was fresh out of seminary. I had no idea what I was doing. And I came to the church and I said, would you like someone to fill the pulpit uh, every once in a while while you're looking for a pastor? You know, maybe it could be me. I don't know. But would you like someone to fill the pulpit? They said, yeah, sure. Can you preach on Easter Sunday? And I was so excited. I never preached on an Easter Sunday before. I said, oh, this is, this is the Super Bowl Sunday of Christian, you know, Christianity, right? I don't, that's happening today as well. That's a really neat coincidence. But... It was so, I was so excited. I went home. I had like two months to prepare for my sermon. I went home and I started preparing. I was working. I was reading all of my books and I had all my tools from seminary. I was ready to preach us, you know, ready to put them to practice finally and, and maybe even find a church that would want me as their pastor, that God would call me there. And I worked for two months, and Easter Sunday came, and I arrived at the church about two hours early. And the reason I got here so early was because after all of that work, I had no sermon. I had no sermon at all. I had studied, and I had studied, and I had studied, and it just never came together. And I came here, and I said, I don't know what I'm going to say. This is going to be the worst Easter Sunday Ever. And it was probably Kelly Merton. And I walked out and said, do you have like a room where I could go pray? Because I need to pray. And so right here, right, this little room right here, right off the sanctuary or vestibule or storage room or whatever the heck it is. I, she said, you can go in there. So I went in there and I closed all the doors and I got down on my knees and I said, oh God. I have nothing, nothing at all. And this is one of the very few times in my life where I heard God's voice speaking in my heart. And he said, Ian, whose people are these? I'm like, I don't even know them. They're your people, God. He said, Ian, whose church is this? I said, well, God, it's your church. Jesus died for it. It's his. I said, Ian, whose word is it? I said, well, sure not mine. It's yours. I said, Ian, whose job is it this morning to make this word effective? I said, well, God, if it's your people, your church, and your word, I guess it's your job. And I came out and I preached. And I don't know if anyone went, oh, I looked and, you know, I had a Spurgeon moment or anything. But it was God's word. And it didn't return empty. Here I am. It's been 10 years, so it must have worked out all right. <laughs> and that's because that's what God did. That's what he does with his word. It doesn't return empty. Folks, have you ever had a moment in your life where you didn't realize it at the time, but it changed and transformed you forever? Maybe it was a person that you met or a conflict that you went through or something along those lines. And you go through it and, and you didn't know it at the time, but you look back a month or a year or 10 years later and you say, that moment changed my life. 
you, God's word works that way too. Let me give you one more story before I finish my first point of three this morning. One more story. A few weeks ago, uh, my very favorite soccer team in all the world, the Seattle Sounders. None of you know who they are, and that's all right. But the Seattle Sounders, they uh, got a New Jersey sponsor. I've told the story to a handful of you. A New Jersey sponsor. And it's Providence Healthcare up in the Seattle area. And Providence Health is a Catholic organization. And there are two things you need to know about people who love soccer. And these are not equally true of me, just so you know. But uh, first of all, people who love soccer drink a lot. I once went to a supporters group party before the game, and I was carrying like half the people to the game after the party. And I said, I'm never doing this again. This is not my scene, and that's not fun. I'm not sitting with the supporters group. The other thing you need to know is that folks who, uh, who are soccer supporters tend to be pretty hostile to the message of Christianity for one reason or another. And so when folks, when my, my online you know, blog discussion board that discusses the Seattle Sounders, when, when the new healthcare, Catholic healthcare sponsor came out, there were all these people who said, I'm quitting, I'm not going to support a team with people like that behind it. And that was a real bummer for me because you know, I love the church, I love Jesus. And they were essentially saying, there's no room for you either in our fan base. These are a bunch of people I don't even know. You know, it doesn't really, in the long run, probably matter a whole lot what they think about me. But it was still a painful sort of thing to see something in society that says, you shouldn't be here. You can't be a part of it. You know, we kind of hate you. And I started to think, you know, it would be a lot easier to just be like everybody else. Right, to just believe and think the way everybody else does. And I opened up my Bible to the book of Proverbs, not with any great purpose in my heart, other than, gosh, I haven't read the book of Proverbs for a long time. And I decided that's where I'm going to study for the next, until I finish the book of Proverbs. And I started reading. And do you know what I started to read? As I felt like the rest of the world has got this all figured out, and I'm just some backward person in some backward place that nobody respects or wants to hear from. The book of Proverbs, basically the first nine chapters, the theme is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And it changed that attitude in my heart, that feeling of fear and that feeling of rejection and that feeling of maybe I've got this all wrong. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. God's word does not return empty. Secondly, The alive and active word of God judges our thoughts and our attitudes. This is where we get to Hebrews chapter 3. Now, what you need to know about Hebrews chapter 3, I'm going to give you the short, 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 short version of all this confusing stuff that we heard this morning out of the scripture reading. Basically, it goes like this. God appeared to the people of Israel at Mount Sinai in the desert after they left Egypt. God delivered him with 10 plagues. He appeared to them on the mountain in the cloud. Everyone was so afraid that they didn't want to go up the mountain because they said, this God's too big and powerful. They were amazed by what they saw. And then Moses goes back up the mountain, and he gets the Ten Commandments. And when he comes down, he finds that the people of Israel have already abandoned the God on the mountain and are worshiping a golden calf. And Moses throws the Ten Commandments. They break. Yes go back up to God and explain, first of all, God, I know you're real angry about what's happening down there. You know, please don't 
destroy all of us after you've been so good to us. Then everyone will just say, you know, God can't deliver his people. And secondly, can you please replace the commandments? Because I kind of broke them. And then he comes back down. And, and this is basically the story that's behind this whole passage. And the author of Hebrews is saying, these people heard the word of God. And what immediately happened? They turned away. And that was revealing. That's what the word of God does. It doesn't make us turn away, but it reveals what's already in our hearts. It acts as a mirror in which we look and we see, this is who I ought to be. This is what God created me to be. This is all that God has for me. And then this is me over here and how I actually live and what I actually believe and what I actually do. And it doesn't do that so that we'll just feel bad about ourselves all the time. Sometimes that, I think that's what we think the point of Christianity is. And that's what people outside of Christianity think the point of Christianity is. You stink! And the message is over. And we live like that sometimes too, don't we? We walk, we're so discouraged by the fact that we don't look like this picture yet. We look like this one over here that we don't actually live in God's power and strength for us. But God doesn't give us the picture of Scripture so that we'll look at it and go, well, I could never live like that, so I might as well just do something else. He gives us that picture of Scripture so that slowly, with the power of his Holy Spirit, we start to move over, bit by bit. Sometimes we move back a little bit, too, and bit by bit forward again. Let me just ask you, if you're here this morning, how many of you, God has radically transformed your life, set you free from some sort of slavery to sin, to addiction, set you free from fear, set you free from the brokenness that's in all of our hearts, has given you hope that there is a better future than today? We got it. So let's all raise, you know, do you experience that now? You just look around for a minute. Do you guys look? Keep, no, don't put your hands back down, you Presbyterians. Keep them up. Yeah, look around. There's so many radical life changes here. And it's most importantly because God's word shows us what God wants for us in the first place. And by doing so, he reveals what's already in our own hearts. God appeared to the people of Israel. And what did they not do? They didn't follow him very well, did they? Back in this story in Hebrews 3, Moses goes up the mountain. He comes down. He finds that they've already abandoned God completely. Sometimes don't we say things like, oh, if God would only just like appear, then I would believe. And then I would. It's not true. It's not true. You know why? Because our hearts, they give up quickly all the time on all sorts of things. That's what's in our hearts apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, apart from God's help. Here today, gone tomorrow. But when we continue to soak in God's word, it is what? It is alive and active. Hebrews 4.12 is alive and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. Folks, I was going through this passage this week. I was like, okay, I'm going to study this in the greatest of detail. Like, what does it mean that it's sharper than any double-edged sword? You know what it means? It means it's really sharp. 
And then it says, penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joint and marrow. You know what? I was like, oh, what does it mean that it, it divides soul and spirit and joint and marrow? It cuts to your very center. That's what it means. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Now I'm getting kind of like, it probably doesn't, you know, it's probably not super specific. It probably just means that it looks into who I am and it reveals what I'm really like. And that's exactly what it means. I was, I'm going to spend hours exegeting, using all my fancy seminary learning that cost me tens of thousands of dollars. And I mean, it just means what it says. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts. Folks, those thoughts and attitudes, they need a good God to look into them to offer correction, to offer encouragement, to tell us when we're getting it right. You ever been out there trying to do the right thing and you're just doing something, you don't know if it's right or not, but you're doing your best and you find out later that was the right thing to do. I mean, sometimes we, we do the wrong thing, we don't know it. We do the right thing, we don't know it. But God's word is at work. It's not about, did I read my Bible today and get this really contented feeling? or a burning even in my heart. It's about God's word does not return to him empty, and it's transforming my heart in ways I don't even see or understand today. Finally, so, again, our first point, God's word does not return empty. It always accomplishes what it sets out to do. Secondly, the alive and active word of God judges our thoughts and our attitude. It reveals the truth about us, not so that we'll feel bad, but so that we can move to become more like Jesus. And finally, the inspired word of God fully equips you for every good work. That sounds like a big promise, doesn't it? Fully equips you for every good work. Are you serious? There's no good work out there that the Bible won't equip me for. Yeah, that's exactly what I mean. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is God-breathed. It's a pretty powerful thing, isn't it? Sometimes we look at this book and we say, well, it's just a bunch of guys and their best thoughts about God. But that's not what we believe about scripture. God actually has, by his spirit, that word breathe or breath is related to the word for spirit. It's often the same word as spirit, pneuma. Whenever we see this idea of being breathed out, do you remember in, in the garden when God creates Adam and Eve? He creates them out of the, the dust of the ground, and then what does he do? He breathes into them. This book is God-breathed. The life that is here is there because God breathed it in. All scripture, the Old and New Testaments, are, are God-breathed and are useful for teaching. Right? This is who you ought to be. This is what God is like. It's useful uh, for rebuking. No, don't go. <laughs> you're, you're getting it wrong. Don't go that direction. Correcting. Again, go this way instead. And finally, training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's the power that Scripture has for us. We look into it. I don't know who to be. 
I don't know what to do. I don't know what I'm about. I don't know what God wants. Go back to Scripture. Always. I think God spoke to me. I, I think maybe I had a dream or I had a vision or I just heard that voice in my heart speaking. And we go back to Scripture. And we ask, is that really what God might be saying to me? Is that really where God might want me to go? Why do we need to do that? Um, one of my very favorite passages in the Bible, I'm not quite sure why I like it so much, but it's out of the book of Jeremiah, and it says, The heart is deceitful above all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? We all know that's true, don't we? Do you ever want things that you know are bad for you? And if you don't think you do, I just want to point your attention to everything that you've eaten in the last week. Oh, man, last night we had dinner, and it was great. It wasn't an amazing meal or anything, but it was really satisfying. It was all the, the nutrition that I needed for the day. And then I thought, you know, I'd really like some dessert. Now, dessert is not an evil or bad thing. It's not a sign that our heart is desperately sick, okay? I'm not piling on dessert in that way. But you know what I did? I thought, oh, I'd like a little dessert. And I have a bag of peanut M&Ms. And when I get things, I don't go small. So I got the world's biggest bag of peanut M&Ms. And I pulled it out. You know, we put a movie on it. I opened up the world's biggest bag of peanut M&Ms, and I start eating. You know what I, you know what I did? I just kept on tossing down those peanut M&Ms, right? Because the heart is sick, and it wants all these things that are no good for me. It wants to eat not a small handful of peanut M&Ms, but 800 peanut M&Ms. Every time I sit down, that's what we do. So I know none of you out there can identify with that in any way, shape, or form. So it's just not peanut M&Ms for you, maybe. It's something else. Yeah, we, we, we want things all the time. And we know they're no good for us, but we want them anyway. And how do, we, how do we tell the difference? Sometimes we know, oh, I want that, and that's a bad thing. But sometimes we go, oh, I want that, and then we find out a month or two or a year later, and we go, oh, that was really bad. That was the worst possible thing I could have done. Why did I want that? That was so dumb. We need a God-breathed witness outside of ourselves to consult. Because otherwise, we're just making it all up ourselves as we go along. And we're, I mean, as often as we may get it right, just as often we're going to get it wrong. Here's another thing we do with Scripture. We don't read it alone. We don't read it alone. Lots of craziness comes out of reading Scripture alone. Because you know what happens sometimes? I, I'll tell you a story. This is another story I might have mentioned before. But a friend of mine was preaching a sermon once. And it was on friendship. And he found out later that there was a woman in the congregation who was listening, and out of his sermon in friendship, what she heard was, I should divorce my husband because I'm unsatisfied in my relationship with him, and God wants me to be satisfied in my friendships. You think she, this person might have benefited from going up to somebody else and saying, hey, was that sermon giving me permission to divorce my husband? Like, uh, What? Because we look for what we want. We listen for what we want. Because our hearts are deceitful and sick. Not bad all the time. Not as bad as they could be. But they need help. They need help from God's word. And we don't read God's word alone. Because even there, even there, we start to get in bad places. So here's why scripture is a means of grace. Because without scripture, we could never know who Jesus is. Romans chapter 1, 
It says, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities have been present, his eternal power and divine nature, and clearly seen by all. Why? So that we can know Jesus and be saved? No, it says, so that man is without excuse. If we look to nature, what we'll know is there's a God out there, and oh man, we've messed up. We need help. If we want to know about the Savior, we go to Scripture. It's a means of grace. It teaches us how we get saved. It teaches us how to be like Jesus. It encourages us when we say, I can't possibly follow Jesus any longer because look how broken I am. It gives us words to speak to each other, words of comfort and of peace. First uh, Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul's writing to a church. People have died in this church, and everyone's saying, we're so concerned that they've missed out on all the good things that God has for them because they've died before Jesus has come back. And the Apostle Paul writes to them, and he says, that's not what's happened at all. Here's the truth about all of these things. And I want you to know that Jesus is going to come back. And when he comes back, the dead in Christ will rise first. So encourage each other with these words. Don't grieve like hopeless people because that's not what you are. And answers are deep and burning questions. And it teaches us to live with the mystery as well. Did you catch in that first song? We articulated the doctrine of the Trinity. Who knows what the doctrine of the Trinity is? Anyone out there? That's a tough one. I know even if you know you don't want to raise your hand because you're concerned I'll call on you and you'll have to explain it. But the doctrine of the Trinity says there's one God who exists eternally in three persons. Those three persons don't make three gods, but just one. He is a tri-personal God in some way that is completely unfamiliar to us and outside of our experience. And we know this because when Jesus came around, he kept saying that he was God while praying to the Father at the same time. He said, well, there is an issue here. How can he be God yet praying to God at the same time? There's a lot of theological complexity there that I'm not going to solve for you this morning. I'm not even sure if I could solve all of it for you this morning. But here's what I want to point you toward. There are certain things, you know, the theologians, when they talk about the doctrine of the Trinity, they say it's not a contradiction. We're not saying three gods equal one God. We're saying three persons somehow belong together in such a way that we can speak of them as one God. And then if you ask the classical Trinitarian theologians, here's what they'll say. You'll say, well, how can that be? And they'll say, mind your own darn business. Because we are digging into the deep things of God here. And if we're not careful, we are liable to drown. Gregory of Nyssa, fourth century church father in modern day Turkey, said this We believe that God is incomprehensible. Therefore, we do not comprehend that we will comprehend him. Did you get that? He is too big for our minds to fully take in. If he was small enough, our minds could fully take him in, he wouldn't be God, is what he's saying. We don't believe a contradiction about God, because that would be false. But we believe something that will get to a certain point, and we'll say there is no further we can go, because he is God, and I am not. Scripture gives us God's grace and helps us to be God's people. So this week, here's what I want you to do. I want you to encounter scripture in a new way. And maybe it means picking up your Bible five times this week for five minutes and reading a few chapters at a time. And when you do that, would you just sit down and pray, God help me. I do, every time I come to scripture, that's what I start with, God help me. 
want you to pick up the Bible and do that. And I encourage you, you know, if you're looking for a good place to start, start in the Gospel of Mark. New Testament, Matthew, Mark, second book in the New Testament, which means that it is the 41st book of the Bible overall, if you're looking for it. If you still can't find it, your Bible is a table of contents. You can open it up. That's how I learned to find things in the Bible. I encourage you to do the same thing. Or, you know, if you're really struggling, I'll open it for you. Put a bookmark there. We'll be fine. Encounter the Bible. Maybe you need to read it like that. Maybe what you need to do, maybe you're already reading your Bible. Would you grab somebody here and say, would you read with me this week? Can we read the same thing? And you maybe on Sunday, let's get to church half an hour earlier. Stay half an hour late. Let's talk about what we heard. Let's talk about what God was saying. Or maybe let's get together during the week. Let's have coffee. Let's uh, have lunch. Let's get together and have a snack. Everything I do revolves around food, so that's why I keep bringing it up. But would, would, you, would you connect with someone on the scriptures? And by the way, if you have a hard time doing scripture by yourself, do it with somebody. There is no better way to help you encounter scripture than to do it with somebody. But whatever it is, would you seek to encounter God's word in a new way this week? And will you come next week ready to talk about what you got? Now, one last story. I'm going to close with this story, and then we're going to move on. I'm already longer than I intended to be. <laughs> Big surprise. But as we, uh, at the national gathering last week, you know, all these pastors and elders from eco-churches across the country all get together. There are something like 1,500 of us in Newport Beach, which was awesome. And then as we were together we had all these breakout sessions where we could learn these different things so george and i on the first day we went to we were going to go to a breakout session on discipleship in the morning and another one in discipleship in the afternoon and in the afternoon we showed up to the room for the breakout session on discipleship and someone up front was like who wants to learn how to prophesy we're like this was not the the breakout session that we signed up for and i don't know if i want to stay for this one but you know we were already sitting down and we're lazy so we stayed and the guys up front they start talking and say, we're gonna have two exercises for you this morning we're gonna we're gonna talk about how you do prophecy and this is a whole other you know can of worms to open up but it was, it was really neat the first thing they said is we want you to find somebody you don't know and then we want you to each of you pray silently god what animal is this person like and why? And it's like, this is the stupidest exercise I've ever heard of in my life, but I'm going to give it a shot. So, you know, I'm standing next to this and we pray, okay, God, what person, what animal is this person like? And I came up with tiger because of the stripes. So I shared, tiger because of the stripes. And she looked at me like, this is stupid. And I looked back at her like, I know, I'm stupid and this is stupid, tiger because of the stripes. But the second time, they had us do this again. They said, this time, they're trying to create low-risk scenarios, not what is this person's deepest, darkest sin, right? That would be a neat thing to prophesy on. But the second question they asked is, uh, what does God love about this person that you don't know? So, you know, once again, I get down, I start to pray, okay, God, what do you love about this person? There's just like nothing coming through. And eventually, eventually, you know, we, we have to talk to each other in, embar in an embarrassed way. I say, all I got was gentleness. Good luck with that. And this other guy looked at me and he said, well, here's what I got from God. You have an ironic sense of humor. And you love sharing times where you messed up or you failed and making a joke out of it. And it really blesses people around you. And God loves that about you. It's like, <laughs> no, he doesn't. <laughs> Here's my point. My point isn't that I want you to now ask God what animal the person next to you, you know, not that. 
my point is that when we do these things together, God gives us an insight that we don't have on our own. You know, if I ever would have said to myself, God loves when I make fun of myself in front of other people, I, I never, ever, ever would have done that. But under the authority of Scripture, with the power of the Holy Spirit, God used another Christian to give me a gift. It was the most meaningful thing that came out of that whole entire week. God loves this big idiot right here. There it is, ironic sense of humor. You won't get that. You won't get that unless you seek it. Seek it this week. And test it against scripture, because this is a sermon about scripture.